Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forest of the night, what immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? In what distant deeps or skies burnt the fire of thine eyes? On what wings dare he aspire? What the hand dare seize the fire, and what shoulder and what art could twist the sinews of thy heart? And when thy heart began to beat, what dread hand and what dread feet? What the hammer, what the chain, and what furnace was thy brain? What the anvil, what dead grasp dare its deadly terrors clasp? When the stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears, did he smile his work to see? Did he who made the lamb make thee, tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forest of the night, what a mortal hand or eye dare frame thy fearful symmetry? You probably guessed by now that today's National Poetry Month poem of the day is The Tiger by William Blake. Hey, this is Trent Lorcher, and welcome to the Teaching ELA podcast, where I help ELA teachers thrive in and out of the classroom. In this podcast, I discuss real teaching for real classrooms. Whether it's a specific piece of literature, teaching strategy, or life strategy, I talk about things ELA teachers need. I promise that with each podcast episode, you'll have something you can use today. And let's begin things with a two. Minute lesson plan. Class is about to start and you need something right now. So here's the one thing you can put on the board right now. So when the students come in, you'll be ready to roll. All right. Uh, today we have figurative language slash sound devices, three column chart. You might have done this one before if you listened to uh, last week's podcast. On the board, on your projection device, on your smart board, whatever it is, two lines uh, running vertically. And the left, in the left-hand column uh, to the left of that first line lists metaphor, illusion, repetition, alliteration, and rhyme. There's an example of all these things. The tiger. In the middle section, have students find examples. And in the right column, have them write a little analysis. How does this particular thing contribute to the theme? Now, again, I told you metaphor, illusion, repetition, alliteration. You'll definitely find alliteration in here. You will. Uh, there's quite a lot of it. There's a little thing called synecdoche in there as well. There's some imagery, some fire imagery, and uh, symbolism, of course. We'll get to that in a second. But now, let's, I want like to share with you my poetic devices and general observations that I found in the poem. Now, this poem, The Tiger, originally appeared in William Blake's Songs of Experience. Its companion piece, The Lamb, appears in Blake's Songs of Innocence. Your analysis of The Tiger should include a comparison to The Lamb. And I, uh, we did an episode on The Lamb just last week. L-A-M-B, Lamb, not L-A-M. I wasn't on The Lamb. <laughs> that, would be, uh, that, would be, that would be cool. We have here... The rhyme scheme is A-A-B-B with a near rhyme ending the first and last stanzas, drawing attention to the tiger's fearful symmetry. And again, when we're teaching rhyme scheme, we're teaching meter and rhythm, we're teaching a little thing called form reflex content. In this case, the the form, the A-A-B-B, is kind of sing-songy. You may have noticed that as I read it aloud. And it's uh, somewhat ironic that the sing-songiness of the poem, considering it's about a creature that uh, will rip your throat out if provoked. So don't provoke tigers. 
Meter and rhythm. The rhythm is created through short lines and rhyming couplets, similar to the lamb. Repetition of tiger in line one, dare in line seven and eight, heart in lines 10 and 11, what, what, in lines 12, 13, and 15, did he, in lines 19 through 20, and several repeats in stanzas one and two establish the poem's nursery rhyme-like rhythm, which we've already discussed in regards to the couplets. Alliteration in the tiger abounds and helps create, again, that sing-song rhythm. Examples include Burning Bright, Distant Deeps, What Wings, Began to Beat, Derrett's Deadly, He Who. Question: The question and analysis must answer is, what is Blake's purpose in using so much alliteration in the tiger other than to create rhythm? And I have that answer for you in a second. Actually, I'll give it to you right now. No, I won't. That's on set. That's on number seven and eight. We're only on number five. So let's go through this line by line here a little bit. Line five is an example of synecdoche, a literary device used when a part represents the whole or the whole represents a part. In line one, tiger, tiger, burning bright alludes to the predator's eyes. But obviously, it's the entire tiger we're talking about. Fire imagery includes burning bright in line one, burnt the fire of thine eyes in line six. In what furnace was thy brain in line 14? The entire fourth stanza is a, uh, resembles a forge. Line 20 contains an allusion to Blake's poem, The Lamb. Note the alliteration of he, who, in this line, the most difficult back-to-back words to say in the entire poem. Coincidence? Apparently, Blake's drawing our attention to the creator of The Lamb. Line 20 contains the key to understanding the theme of the poem. Blake asks, How is it possible for something as innocent as a lamb and as ferocious as a tiger to exist. How can we account for good and evil in the world? How is it possible that human beings can be both good and evil? It's a philosophical dilemma that has confounded scholars for centuries. What do you think? The last stanza serves two purposes. One, it ties in the first stanza of the poem to the last. Makes sense. Two, it emphasizes the question asked in the previous line. Symbolism. The meaning of symbolism in the tiger answers the previous question. Examples include the tiger represents the dangers of mortality. The fire imagery symbolizes trials, baptism by fire perhaps. Three, the forest of the night represents unknown realms or challenges. Four, the blacksmith represents the creator. Five, the fearful symmetry symbolizes the existence of both good and evil. The knowledge that there is opposition in all things. A rather fearful symmetry indeed. The meaning of symbolism in the tiger is open to interpretation. Feel free to share yours in the comments. Podcasts even have comments. I should know since I'm a podcaster. You know, I gave the two-minute lesson plan early, but I think if there's a one thing here, there's a one-thing lesson plan, it is the symbolism that I just talked about. All right, that sound can only mean one thing. It means it's time for the one thing. That's right. If there's one thing you teach from this story, it's going to be this right here. So if you want to uh, put together a two-column chart for symbolism, then uh, I would go ahead. In fact, that could even be a two-minute lesson plan as well, maybe even a better one. Left hand, you know, the tiger, the fire imagery, the forest, the blacksmith, the fearful symmetry, all these things represent challenges, trials in life. And, and I, I think that putting the po- two poem two poems together you put the two poems together so we teach poetry that we see Blake is Blake is commenting on the 
dual nature of life, good and evil, all that stuff. All right. Thanks for listening. That was The Tiger by William Blake. Today's National Poetry Month poem of the day is Fire and Ice by Robert Frost. Now, this Fire and Ice poem analysis takes you step by step through the analysis process, allowing you to teach your own literary analysis whenever the fancy strikes. And the fancy does strike often in the ELA classroom. And it's usually about five minutes after your administrator says he wants to observe your students applying higher level thinking skills too. You ever had that? You have like a kind of a chill day plan, something easy, maybe some vocabulary. And then your principal says, hey, I'm coming into the class. And you're like, oh man, I need to show the principal that my kids can uh, use critical thinking skills without soiling themselves. Welcome to the Teaching ELA Podcast. Hey, this is Trent Lorcher, and welcome to the Teaching ELA Podcast, where I help ELA teachers thrive in and out of the classroom. In this podcast, I discuss real teaching for real classrooms, whether it's a specific piece of literature, teaching strategy, or life strategy. I talk about things ELA teachers need. I promise that with each podcast episode, you'll have something you can use today. All right. An analysis of Fire and Ice begins with reading the poem. It's short, so you can even read it several times. That's what I did when I, you know, taught it. Some say the world will end in fire, some say in ice. From what I've tasted of desire, I hold with those who favor fire. But if I had to perish twice, I think I know enough of hate to say that for destruction, ice is also great and would suffice. So imagine having 11 or more, a dozens of complete poetry units with handouts and lesson plans completed. Wouldn't that be awesome? Well, you don't need to imagine because over at ELACommonCoreLessonPlans.com, these units are teacher-ready and student-ready, already done for you. All you have to do is make copies, print. Actually, you, could, you should probably print before you make the copies. Yeah, just you know, a little bit of copy and, copy and advice, copy machine advice. I used to work at Kinko's Copy Center. Uh, so I know, I know a fair amount about making copies. Anyhow, just print, make copies, accept the accolades from colleagues and students. And uh, there's my plug for ELA Common Core Lesson Plans. That's my website. It's a good one. You should check it out. All right. Any good Robert Frost poetry analysis begins with gathering data. In fact, any good poetry analysis begins with gathering gathering data. It's called citing textual evidence to support analysis. That's what the standard is. So my analysis of Fire and Ice led to the following. Again, you, you don't have to agree. You don't have to agree with my analysis at all. In fact, you can start your own website. Start your own podcast. I don't care. I think more the merrier. I might learn a thing or two. So number one, as the title implies, Fire and Ice is a poem of contrast and a poem poem of extremes. We have ice, which equals hatred. Fire represents desire. Perhaps a more accurate word for desire would be lust, which is often associated with fire. Problem is, is lust doesn't rhyme with fire, you know, or desire. So, you know, fire... Let me just read this again. From what I've tasted of lust, I hold with those who favor fire. This doesn't have the same ring to it. So I'm going to make, I'm going to make that connection because I can do that. I'm a teacher. Fire and ice appear in the title and are repeated twice in the poem. They form the central concrete images in the poem. The rhyme scheme A, B, A, A, B, C, B, C, B divides the poem into proper sections while linking the two as well. Line five is a pivot, similar to what you'd see in a, maybe a Spencerian stanza. Let's take a look at line five, if it's a pivot after all. One, two, three, four. But if I had to perish twice, in fact, the word but there kind of tells you it's a pivot. 
You didn't need me to tell you that. Meter is mostly iambic tetrameter with a few lines of iambic duometer. The content of the poem seems ill-suited for the quicker-paced, faster-flowing tetrameter, I think. Favor fire is alliterative. In line four, the entire poem is an example of meiosis or understatement. Specific examples of meiosis can be found in lines seven and nine. We have to say that for destruction, ice is also great and would suffice. We're talking about the destruction of the world, and he's just kind of handling it, you know, kind of ho-hum, destruction of the world. Yeah, it'd be nice. It'd be nice. The casual reference to dying twice, knowing hate, tasting desire, and other understatements underlie the poem speaker's call for moderation. Because we're talking about extremes here, fire and ice. How about a little something in between? Maybe cable news networks and in, in, could uh, learn from this. 24-hour news cycle. Got to have extremes, right? Anyway, the happy rhythm of the poem belies the underlying message of destruction. And I read and I thought the, the theme of this is the dangers of extremism. Extremism will eventually destroy the world. doesn't have to be the literal world. It could destroy societies, destroy relationships, destroy families, destroy schools. You get the point. So after the data is gathered, you are ready to write the paragraph. I've noticed that when students have their have well-written data, thorough data, and it's organized well that uh, they have a much easier time with the analysis paragraph. I'm just going to read you mine. I'll let you decide. Poetic form and structure often enhance a poem's theme or meaning. Frost's ironic use of meter and rhythm in fire and ice underlies his hidden theme that moderation is the world's salvation. Frost uses two extremes, fire and ice, as the poem's controlling images, images which symbolize the two extremes of lust and hate. These two extremes, he expostulates, will eventually destroy the world, the rhythm and meter of the poem, and the use of meiosis offer an alternative to extremism, moderation, and provide the solution to the world's impending doom. Frost chooses the fast-flowing, less serious iambic tetrameter mixed with iambic duometer over the more serious, slower-moving iambic pentameter as a framework for his understated theme of the world's destruction and potential salvation. A meter that brings to the forefront his use of meiosis. He casually states, I hold with those who favor fire and for destruction, ice is also great and would suffice, to comment on cataclysmic events. Although his poetic form contrasts the overt theme of the poem, it underscores its underlying meaning. Just in case you weren't able to take notes there, don't worry, I have this blog post linked to... In the show notes, I have show notes. I've been doing show notes again, because that's what the people wanted. All right, no one actually requested them. I just figured if, you know, I'm talking about something in the podcast, you might want to put a link to it in the show. Any lesson plan ideas here? I think maybe symbolism. What do you think? Or maybe just do this straight-up poem annotation. Uh, literary analysis. I went over that with the the on April first uh, when I when we kicked off National Poetry Month. I shared the greatest, uh, most effective lesson plan for teaching poetry ever written. Okay, maybe not, but it's still a pretty good one. My friend uh, Chelsea shared it with me ten fifteen years ago. Thanks, Chelsea, if you're listening. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing well. I live in the Caribbean. <laughs> All right. Fire and ice. Thanks for listening to the Teaching ELA podcast. For more teacher-ready, student-ready lesson plans, head on over to ELACommonCoreLessonPlans.com. That's ELACommonCoreLessonPlans.com, where we have hundreds of lesson plans and handouts that are ready to use right now. And as always, if this podcast has helped you thrive in the classroom, we'd appreciate a like and a review. 